So I'd like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Kristen.
having been in OA for 20 years, I have a lot of opinions <laughs> about how this program works and doesn't work and what we do and what we don't do and so forth. I like to think of them as facts, but they're, they are <laughs> they're grounded in fact. I can I brought my big book in my OA 12 and 12, and they're they're grounded in fact, but they are opinions. Um, the first opinion is that this program is not about losing weight. Um, it's about abstaining from compulsive overeating. It's no more about losing weight than going to AA is about rehabilitating your liver. It is a fact that if you stop drinking, your liver will probably get better. And it is a fact that if you stop eating compulsively, you're probably going to lose weight. And that was the thing that I didn't know when I walked in the doors here 20 years ago. I thought I was too far gone, and I couldn't lose weight. I just wanted to stop eating compulsively. Funny thing how that works. Less calories, less food, less body weight. Hmm. But that wasn't the focus, and it hasn't been the focus for 20 years. The focus has been the insanity in my head that drives me to compulsively overeat and alleviating that through the 12 steps. I'm not saying that it isn't important to take care of our bodies. It's very important to take care of our bodies. And, and you will find countless people in AA who come to AA, get sober, and start taking care of their bodies because they've abused them so horrifically with alcohol. And like that, like AA, we can do the same thing. We can also improve our financial situation dramatically. And our emotional situations dramatically. And all of that stuff clears up when we start working the 12 steps. But the main purpose of OA is to abstain from compulsive overeating. Um, it took me 10 years in this program to figure out the disease of compulsive overeating. I don't know why that is. I'm sure I heard about it. I read the literature a lot. Maybe it was just it took what it took. You know, it took 10 years of detox. I don't quite know. But it took me a long time to get the full ramifications of this disease. And because of that, I want to, I, I'm compelled to talk about it a lot. Um, the one thing I want to say is that the, the literature is... Um, the OA literature is very good, but it's not a starting point for recovery in this program. Um, the reason for that is because it doesn't explain the disease of compulsive overeating. In step one, and I'm not saying this to bash OA literature, because I'm so eternally grateful for all the work that's gone into it and for having it at my disposal. But I want to read to you what the um, step one in the OA 12 and 12 says about the disease of compulsive overeating. It may be that many of us were born with a physical or emotional predisposition to eat compulsively. Whatever the cause, today we are not like normal people when it comes to eating. 
That's it. That's the disease concept in OA, in 12 and 12. Well, <laughs> that doesn't really leave us with much. <clears throat> it doesn't really leave us with much um, motivation to consider it a disease, to think of it as life-threatening, to move forward with the drastic, and I mean drastic, program of action that it requires to overcome this disease. In a, in, a, in a nutshell, well, I'm not going to do it in a nutshell. No. So what I learned from reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll constantly refer back to the big book and to AA because that's the mothership. We're patterning ourselves after AA, and if we're going to do that, we really need to do that. We can't just rip off their steps and go along our merry way. It doesn't work that way. We need to really look at them. If we want what they have, we've got to do what they did to get it. And what they did was pretty darn drastic. Eventually, I hope I'm going to get back to my story, because how on earth are you going to know I really am a compulsive overeater if I don't, if I don't tell you a little bit about what happened to me? but I want to get this in. In the doctor's opinion, it talks about an allergy of the body. It talks about when we put the substance into our body, it creates an allergic reaction. And unlike strawberries that might create a rash and shellfish that might cause us to stop breathing and, you know, pollen that might cause us to sneeze. Our reaction is a craving beyond our control. And that craving causes us to continue to eat more, eat more, eat more, eat more, eat more. Okay. Then it tells us about an obsession of the mind. That we think that or forget that we had this episode that we couldn't stop. We forget what it did to us, how sick we made ourselves, how disgusted we were with ourselves, how embarrassed we were that we ate the entire birthday cake before the birthday celebrant got to the party. You know, How we went out at midnight to the grocery store in a dangerous part of town where nobody knew us to shop for $50 worth of candy and cookies to eat through the night. We forget all that, and we say, ah, I can have a bite of this. I've been good. I deserve it. I was just having a bad day that day. It's not going to be the same. And we take that bite, and we trigger the allergy, and then we're off and running again. Now, the important thing about this is, is that it's really Critical. You do not make a compulsive overeater with just one of those pieces. Somebody who's obsessed with compulsive overeating will have a bad day or have a reason to celebrate or whatever, and X, Y, or Z is going to fix it. And they go and they have a bite or a serving of 
whatever their choice is, and it doesn't fix it. And they're full, and they're done, and that's it. No harm, no foul, no big deal. And it's over with. Somebody who's only got the allergy eats said item, triggers the allergy, is off on a binge for however long it takes to wear itself out, and then it's over. And the next time they, they you know, are offered that substance, they're like, uh-uh, nope, last time I ate that, I couldn't stop, I'm not doing that again, that's it, no thank you very much. And that's it, and that's the end of it. So you can be an obsessive person, or you can have an allergy, and it's not a problem. You put those two things together, and you're in deep shit. And that's where I was. I was stuck. I was completely and totally stuck. Because I had a body that would not let me stop eating, and a mind that would not let me stay stopped, if I ever did get stopped. And that is powerlessness. That is step one. That is being screwed. Okay. And that is what we need step 12 for, a spiritual experience. Having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, it's the spiritual experience that restores us to sanity. There's a, um, a thing in the big book that I've um, read over and over again that, to me, describes insanity. It's uh, in There is a Solution, chapter, uh, or, I'm sorry, page 24. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory and suffering the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or month ago, we are without defense against the first drink or bite. And to me, that is the insanity of the disease. And to be restored to sanity, for me, is to be able to bring to, to memory with sufficient force the pain and suffering. I can bring to memory the pain and suffering of 20 years ago. And that's not because I am so special. It's because I've been restored to sanity. Because I've been <coughs> given a, a miracle as a result of this program. I've had divine intervention as a result of this program. And you're going to hear um, me and any lots and lots of other people throughout your um, OA experience talk about God in these rooms. And... Um, you know, I, use, I spend a lot of time not using the word God, and I interchangeably don't use the word God. I choose to use the word God now because it's just easier. It's just easier. It's a universal term that means something generically to everybody. It means something more to some people than others, but I don't associate a particular religion or or spiritual belief with that word. It's just a nice catch-all phrase, like basket. It works. You know? We know what a basket is, and we know what a basket does. You know? And that's what God is, you know? God is, is a concept. A concept that has a certain use and utility. 
And uh, so that's the word that I choose. But my conception of God has changed greatly over the years. And I have to say that it's through the freedom of this program that's allowed me to do that. I came in with the concept of a higher power that didn't cure my compulsive overeating, that didn't work, that failed me utterly. I was bitter. I was angry. I'd spent a lot of time in church doing good deeds, working hard, trying to be a good person, and it didn't fix me. It didn't fix me. All it, all it did was drive me to the goodie table, you know, and I was the one, the fat one in the corner, gobbling up everything on the, you know, goodie table while everybody else was doing their thing. Um, so, segue, what it was like. Um, I... I think I was born with an itch that just couldn't be scratched. That's ultimately the way I describe the di- disease, the ism, the whatever. It just it was an itch that couldn't be scratched. When I first came into OA, man, I could pick apart my family and I could tell you everything that was wrong with them and how my parents failed me and you know, how it was all their fault and whatnot. And I spent a fair amount of time doing that. Um, But, you know, after plenty of years in this program and working through my stuff, doing my uh, inventories, working with my sponsors, some serious therapy, some age. Age does a lot to change between 
round and fat, um, mostly because I was quite the athlete, and I was involved with things that kept me moving a lot. The other thing is, is that my mother was really into nutrition, and she didn't keep a lot of goodies in the house. That's not to say we didn't have the ingredients to make homemade goodies, because she liked to do that. But um, we didn't have chips and ding-dongs and all of that other stuff that now is so prevalent and in so many people's covers. It just wasn't in. I had to work really hard to get my fix. And, um, I mean, really hard. I have to tell you that um, what my mother didn't use the pantry to put her food in. I don't know why. She put it in the covers underneath the counter. So my little ritual when my mother wasn't home was to sit my butt down at one end of the floor and open up all the cupboard doors and forage in the cupboards and scoop my ass from one side of the kitchen to the other, looking through each of the cupboards trying to find, you know. And to my horror, I didn't think it was a horror at the moment, to my delight, I found Baker's chocolate didn't know what Baker's chocolate was. I found out really soon what Baker's chocolate was. I took a big healthy bite of that bar and oh my god, rude awakening. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Baker's chocolate is not sweetened, so it's very, very bitter. You, uh, you have to add the sugar to it. So um, it wasn't a pleasure at all, and I was very disappointed. I thought I found a whole box of chocolates. My mother used to have to hide the chocolates. Um, she liked to buy nice, fine baker's chocolate, um, you know, a few months before Christmas, so she had something to, you know, uh, make cookies and things with and whatnot. And not, I shouldn't say, I'm, I don't mean baker's chocolate in the unsweetened kind, but nice, fine chocolates for cookies and whatnot. And she'd hide it in her underwear drawer. <laughs> Do you know I found it? <laughs> I found it. And one day she went into her underwear drawer and she found this, you know, what used to be a pound, pound and a half bar of chocolate. Oh, it must have been much more than that. It was big. It started out big. Then I had, yeah, a pound isn't big. Come on. Um, I had whittled that thing down to about the size of my thumb. And it was still wrapped in the same cellophane it came in, in my mom's underwear drawer. And my mom and my dad called me into their room late at night one night. My mom's got her underwear drawer open with this little nub of a chocolate bar in there. And uh, she looks at me, and my dad looks at me, and she says, uh, what's this? Oh, uh, your chocolate? You've been in it, haven't you? Yeah. My dad looks at me and says, if you ever rifle through my drawers, I'm going to cut your arm off. Now, my dad's not a violent person, and he would never do that. The point he was trying to make was what a huge violation of their privacy that that had been. And I had no idea because I was just, you know, driven. I was driven, and it didn't matter whose privacy I invaded. It, it had to be. I had to get it. I had to soothe myself. It was the only means I had. When I went to college... Oh, all hell broke loose because I was free. And um, there were no boundaries on my eating consumption at all. In fact, um, I, lived, I went to a, a small school. Um, I lived on campus. 90% of the uh, students did. Um, the cafeteria food plan was all you could eat three times a day plus anything you could forage out of the kitchen in between. Um, 
and uh, they had a freezer chock full of ice cream bars, and um, you could go there in the middle of the day and take out what you wanted and eat. Yeah, they don't do that now. <laughs> I, I fixed that. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I was just eating like a mad woman. And they had things that my mom never provided, and it was stunning and fabulous and wonderful and horrific all at the same time. I was in a private school that I was absolutely not prepared for on any level, academically, emotionally, physically, anything. I was way too immature for this. Way. I, I think I might have been mature enough when I got to 30, but I certainly wasn't at 20, 21. I was not at all. I was overwhelmed. I, socially, I was just drowning, absolutely drowning, um, and scholastically, too. Um, uh, as I've said before, I was very athletic, and I was on the volleyball team, and athletics had always been the thing that had kept my weight down, but I couldn't keep up at in this environment. I was so drowning and my food consumption was so high and I'm sure that I was completely out of my mind on sugar high like you wouldn't believe. And I discovered regular Coke, which I'd never had before. So here I'm flying on caffeine and sugar like nothing and I can't keep a thought in my head and I can't play volleyball to save my soul and my coach is a raving lunatic and she's berating me and cursing me on the court in front of stands full of people. And my salvation becomes the thing that ends up ruining me even more because I end up having just to eat to deal with the stress of this. So it backfires. And I, um, after two years of that living hell, I finally got up enough self-esteem to say, I don't need this abuse anymore. I do not need this abuse. And um, I quit the team, and my eating just went over, you know, out of control. Uh, and then I didn't have any athletics whatsoever to keep my weight down, and I shot up to 200 pounds. I, and in those days, Lane Bryant and whatnot, they didn't have fashionable clothes. I mean, now they have pretty fat clothes, really pretty fat clothes. I look in those catalogs and go, why can't they make those in my size now? They're beautiful clothes, but they didn't have anything like that then. And I, and I um, knew how to sew, and I sewed these, you know, MC Hammer pants with the Velcro waist <laughs> that I could extend, you know. I mean, you put enough Velcro on it, you could just extend it and extend it. You know, and these big blousey shirts and everything, and I tried to make them in nice vibrant colors, so I, you know, at least had some fashion. I would, I don't have any pictures of those days, but I kind of wish I did. But anyway, um, and uh, um, you know, my weight just ballooned. Um, the summer before I went to OA, I was working at. I was living with my parents in Fullerton and um, uh, working at my school in Eagle Rock, and that's about a 35-mile difference. And um, I was buying two dozen donuts on the way into work, eating a dozen um, on the way, and then showing up 
you know, with the surprise of a dozen donuts for everybody. But of course I had to, like, have a couple donuts, too, to join in, you know. So that's what it was like. Um, and I was talking to people about OA, that I needed to go. I don't know what happened. I don't know how I found out about OA. I don't know what I was thinking or anything, and I don't know why I wasn't afraid to talk about it. But I was telling anybody who would listen I needed to go to OA. But I was, didn't, you know, this is my mind. I didn't have presence of mind to look it up in the phone book. I thought it was a secret society. <laughs> I, I didn't know how I thought I was going to get there or, or whatever. I also knew that I didn't want to start OA in Fullerton because I knew I was going to make friends. I knew I was going to make friends, and I didn't want to leave them. I wanted to wait till I got back to school so that I'd be able to spend the time with them. I, um, so I did. I, well, I, so I talked and talked and talked, and sure enough, there was this woman um, in the financial aid office who um, knew another woman on campus who'd been in OA. She was in relapse. As I look at it now, she was in relapse. She hadn't been to an OA meeting in years. But bless her soul, she took me to two OA meetings. The first OA meeting, nobody showed up to. She brought me pamphlets that she had had in her house, and I read those, and we talked and whatnot. And she was very sweet, very nice woman. Um, and then uh, the second meeting was the night, the next night, and people did show up there, and it was a miracle. And um, it's kind of history since then for me. I mean, I just kept coming. Um, a couple of things are very important about that night. Um, first is, is my first OA hug, which was immediate. There was a greeter. I think a greeter is really important. It's a scary job. Anybody who takes that job as a greeter, uh, my hats are off to them, because it's scary to stand at the front door and ask somebody if they want to hug you. And the guy that was standing at the front door was... Um, a man who was, you know, I don't know, 6'4", I'm 5'6". I'm kind of scared of tall men. Um, still a big guy. He started out at 500 pounds. I think he was about 250, maybe 300 at the time. Still a really big guy, but certainly 200 pounds down from where he was. Smile on his face. Hi, welcome to OA. Would you like a hug? <laughs> I don't know what possessed me. I said yes. <laughs> He's a wonderful man. He's still in OA to this day. I love him dearly. Um, he was the very first welcome I got. The next really big thing that happened at that meeting, as I said earlier, was that people were talking my language, and that blew me away. The third thing was is that somebody came in late, and at the, at the secretary's announcements, they didn't give chips at this meeting, but she said, um, I just wanted to um, say that I'm celebrating, tonight I'm celebrating six months of abstinence from bulimia. Now, my jaw dropped because this was a girl I went to school with. This was the girl. You know the girl. The girl who has everything. She's beautiful. She's rich. She's smart. She's popular. Everybody loves her. She collapsed in our campus dining room from electrolyte balance due to bulimia. They took her to the mental hospital that we were having our meeting at six months prior. Diagnosed her with bulimia and manic depression. Got her fixed up. Got her to meetings. She was amazing. I wasn't willing to have a sponsor for many, many years in OA, but this woman 
essentially was my sponsor for the first couple of years because she would share with me what she was doing in her program and what I, I was whatever I was willing to do I would emulate her she taught me how to eat salad for dinner you know I mean that was a big deal salad was scary salad burns up fast you know it, what am I going to do it's not heavy it doesn't weigh heavy in my body and that was that's a big part of the allergic reaction for me with compulsive overeating is needing to weigh myself down and then if I accidentally you know go over that particular point where I'm really overweighed down then that kicks in the allergy and then I just keep eating and eating and eating she taught me how to eat salads I mean you know granted they were salads with ham and cheese and turkey you know but to me that was still a salad that was still rabbit food that was still scary that wasn't like a steak and potato and and uh Oh, you can eat shrimp at Sizzler, which is what I lived on for like a year, my second year in OA. At 22, you can do that. <laughs> at 41, not so much anymore. But you know what? It's all in gradation, too. You know, I want to say that um, back to the opinions. I think the idea of fat serenity is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of in my life. For those of you who don't know what that means, it's a judgment that some people in OA put on other people in OA for not like getting super slim or staying super slim. They lose some, most of their weight, not all of their weight, don't get down to whatever somebody else determines as goal weight and they consider that fat serenity. And what I would like to say about that is that first off, if you're serene, you're working a program. There's no way to be compulsively overeating and serene. So if you're serene, you're working a program, and that's what we're here to do. Number two, if you walk in the doors of OA at 500 pounds, and you lose two, and you stay at 300 pounds for the rest of your life, that is a friggin' miracle. That is the program at work. That is beating all the odds and all the statistics. When I came into OA, the statistics out there in the diet industry were something like 90% of anybody who loses weight gains it back in the next year or two and then some. The fact that anybody can walk into this program and lose weight and maintain any of it is a miracle. So... Fooey to that serenity. <laughs> the next thing is relapse is not inevitable. And then it is. I say that because the big book gives us tremendous promises about how this program will work in our lives. And what it can do, how it can revolutionize our way of behaving and thinking. In, I think it's the doctor's opinion when, when they're talking about Dr. Carl Jung, um, who was treating a man for alcoholism, and the man spent an entire year with him. 
and stayed sober during that entire year. And then when, you know, their treatment was over, the guy left and got drunk shortly afterward. He went back to Carl Jung and said, why? What's wrong with me? You have to tell me. What's the situation? And Dr. Jung said, well, you're hopeless. You're hopeless. And, and you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. And I've been trying to, like, work with you, but nothing I've done has helped. Now, this is like the third most preeminent psychiatrist in the world at the time saying he's not smart enough to outwit alcoholism. And um, the guy says, come on, there's got to be some, there's got to be some exception. And he says, well, yeah, here and there, every so often, there is. People have what's known as a vital spiritual experience a vast rearrangement of their thought processes where things that, concepts that they had, that they lived on, were just thrown to the side and a whole new way of thinking and behaving comes in. And I've been trying to create that in you and I haven't had any success. And I haven't had any success with people as bad as you. So the guy's like, well, I'm a religious guy. That should be fine. I can do that. He's like, no, no, no. It's not about your religious concepts. It's about your spiritual experience. It's about a changing of your thought processes. Okay, long story short, and you can read about it in the book yourself. Um, the guy finds a way to have that spiritual experience. And he never drinks again. And he carries that spiritual experience to another guy who has his spiritual experience. I can't say he never drinks again, but he, he had a tremendous impact because he carried the message to Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson already knew about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind from Dr. Silkworth. So he already knew what his disease was, but he didn't have a solution. So the guy who told the guy, who told Bill, gave him the solution, which was the spiritual experience. And Bill carried that message to Dr. Bob. Now, Dr. Bob had been... Um, Dr. Bob had been working on that spiritual experience. He'd actually been working with the people who had been working with the guy who went to Dr. Jung. But he didn't know about the disease. And so Bill got to share that with Dr. Bob. So here you've got people now who don't know about the disease but know about the solution. People who know about the disease or know about the solution but don't know about the disease getting together, creating AA. Not time for me to wrap up, and I don't know where I was going with this. But um, so I'll just kind of take a right-hand turn and say that how very important it is to know this information, to have the willingness to do the work that it takes to recover. Um, 
I didn't know this information for 10 years, in a way. I didn't get it. I don't know why. It wasn't my time, whatever. But in that time, I had, a, outside of my absence from sugar and chocolate, I had relapse all over the place with regards to other food items and compulsive overeating and depression and struggle and complete and utter fog as to how I was in that situation. And I know that that is the disease of compulsive overeating. And when I finally made up my mind to throw myself into this program and to really do it the way it's written in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and stop picking and choosing and stop thinking that I knew what was best, but started following the example of the people in the big book. There are a zillion promises, a zillion promises in the big book. A lot of them are about what recovery will give us, what the steps will give us, but a lot of them are also what, where the disease will take us. And that's where I was going with this. We were talking about relapse being inevitable and, un, and not. Because the disease is inevitable. We will die of this disease. We will be stuck in that constant cycle of, of um, binging, stopping, getting talked back into it by our brains, binging, stopping, talked back into it, binging, stopping. And the cycle becomes longer binges and shorter stops. Longer binges and shorter stops. More damage, more damage, more damage. But, so relapse is inevitable without the 12 steps, without the spiritual experience. But relapse is not inevitable in OA. You can walk in the doors today and never relapse your entire life. You can never have another bite starting now. We've all been in here. I haven't seen anybody eating. We're all abstinent. All of us. Abstinence is now. It's not about going out and finding it. We're here. We have it now. It's about keeping it. It's about going to any length to keep what we have right now, this very minute. And that means throwing ourselves utterly into this program. Abandon yourself. Abandon yourself to this program. I am so totally grateful for my life. OA has given me a life that I cannot even believe. I could talk here for another hour and not get tired of telling you how incredible this program has been to me. My life is not perfect. I could also talk to you about another hour about all the things I do wrong and what's wrong with my life and how I'm not doing it well enough and whatever else. But life is a journey. Life is an EKG. It's not a straight line. You're dead when it's a straight line. It's not a straight line. Find a God. Find a sponsor. Work the steps. Throw yourself into this program. Join us on this happy road of destiny. Live a wonderful life. Thank you so much for mine. Thank you for letting me share.